Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm your host, Gavin Esther, and on today's show, the fallout from last week's three by-elections and why all the main parties keep smiling, despite all three having a lot to think about. The Conservatives still look doomed, but Labour's commitment to its green policies was already shaky before the supposed anti ulez vote in Uxbridge. So, will Keir Starmer's party be able to hold its nerve as we get closer to a general election? Plus, will politics ever stop dumping on young people? The Conservatives won't give them a chance to buy their own homes, instead leaving them to pay exorbitant rents, taxing them to pay benefits to often wealthy pensioners, claiming some of their university degrees are worthless and insulting them as avocado-eating, Netflix-watching snowflakes. The Lib Dems don't want to build the houses that young people need, and even Labour is dialing down the youth focus of the Corbyn years for a more cautious approach. We'll be looking at the neglected young voter, and we'll be choosing our heroes and villains of the week too. So let's meet today's panel. Marie Leconte is a columnist, an author, and a neglected young person. Hello, Marie. Hello. I'm 31, so delighted I still count as young. <laughs> well, Twitter has now rebranded. It's now X. That's the latest from uh, Elon Musk. <laughs> I wish people could see Marie's face. Yeah, <laughs> thinking about this. So, do you think the ambition to make it the future state of unlimited interactivity has any hope of becoming real? I just can't really think of anyone who's like, oh, yeah, the guy whose cars explode, I'll trust him with my money. Like, it's just because they're trying to become a bank. <laughs> and I'm like, what in what world could you like, you know, generally, I think storing your money like a cartoon character just notes like falling out of your coat <laughs> would be safer than storing your money on Twitter. Uh, so no, no, it's not going to work. But it, it's, I don't know, it, it's heart-wrenching and, and just incredibly anger-inducing as well. It's just the stupidest thing. And he's doing it for no reason. Well, maybe he's emulating Vladimir Putin who put Zed in all his tanks. Maybe the rebranding works so okay. well in Ukraine. It's gonna, we've got 24 <laughs> more like really annoying men who can claim a letter. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Andreu is a writer, a commentator, an actor, a cook, and it says here, young at heart. So hello, Alex. Okay, that, that's offensive. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Spain's election results were all over the British media. It was going to be a big right-wing extremist takeover. They've not quite gone the way that the press thought. Is that populist wave in Europe something that's just used to fill empty pages and to get people wound up in the press in Britain? 
You know, I used to think so, but it happens so often. I think you have to consider the possibility that there's a slight agenda behind it, like a, a, an attempt to normalize it, because it just happens every single election now, right? There is just a host of think pieces about the march of the far right in Europe. And then the result comes and no one goes, oh, we got that wrong, actually. You know, they fell back. Vox lost seats mm. in the election. They lost like 3% share and they went from 50-odd seats to 30-odd seats. I did a little straw poll, okay? So the Telegraph, two days ago by its Europe editor, how Spain's left lost its heartlands and put the hard right on the brink of power. The Telegraph today, same author, Spain's socialists dash center-right PP's hopes of power. We're never wrong for long. Spectator two days ago, how Spain's politics succumbed to radicalism. Spectator today, same guy, Jim Lawley, when will Spain's political paralysis end? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I noticed today a Scottish conservative politician says the great thing about the United Kingdom is we don't have these right-wing extremist parties Yeah, because we have them presumably within the Conservative Party. I don't know. Just as Suela Braverman was found guilty in the courts of penalising pregnant women and children on their benefits while they're in the asylum system. So, yeah, pull the other one. But But... To go back to the original point, so Spain, the election came, it's not as everyone seemed to think it would go. The path to power for the Conservatives is actually really difficult because even with Vox, they, they don't have enough. And I don't see many other options for partner parties out there. So Sanchez still has the more likely path to power, but Actually, the thing that will happen probably is another election in the autumn. But they gained, you know, the socialists gained seats and gained share in this election. What was interesting to me was it's bakingly hot in Spain. It's yeah. holiday time and people turned really up to vote. They now. really yeah. turned up to vote. Yeah. So people care. Yeah. Completing our panel today is senior associate editor of The New Statesman. They perhaps should be paying us for all this sort of exposure. <laughs> Rachel Cunliffe, welcome back to the podcast, Rachel. I'm quite offended that Marie got to be a young person at 31 <laughs> and I'm 32. And I'm, not, I'm not a Listen, young person. It's actually I was young at very heart. sorry. I was young at heart. <laughs> Do you want that? <laughs> I want to be in the same category as Marie. But it stops at 31 and three quarters, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's the, we have to cut off somewhere. <laughs> Uh, now, you, uh, Rachel, you interviewed the psychiatrist David Nutt for the New Statesman recently, and he spoke about psychedelics being used to treat depression. Can you seriously imagine politicians going to say, that's a good idea, we'll, we'll pay for that on the NHS? It was such a fascinating interview, and the hook for it was that they have done this in Australia. So psilocybin, which is the magic mushrooms ingredient, is now a legal medicine in Australia to treat depression, and MDMA is a legal medicine to treat PTSD. And... This guy, David Nutt, has led all the studies that show that psychedelics can turn off the parts of the brain that cause unhelpful thought loops that cause depression or OCD or addiction and, and loads of other things. And he's like, great, can we can we study them? And in the UK, they are scheduled in such a way that they're in like a category where the government has just decided, based on no evidence, that they have no therapeutic value. So they are harder to study than other drugs, which we accept are quite dangerous, but could have value. So they're harder to study than heroin or cocaine. You need like a, a, a license from the Home Office to do it. You need like to jump through all these like regulatory hoops. And there was this parliamentary debate on this in May, simply on 
changing the category. So not legalizing them, but just saying, shall we put them in the same category as heroin and cocaine so we can actually like do some studies and see if this stuff works or see if we, if we have got studies showing that it works, see if we can build on that. And the Home Office didn't even send the drugs minister. He didn't even turn up. They sent the immigration minister who couldn't even pronounce psilocybin. So is there is there scope for them to be used as medicines? Yes, across the world. Here in the UK, not not for a while, no. We're going to talk about education and perhaps education of politicians in detail in just a, <laughs> mo- just a moment. First up, the main parties are still digesting the meaning of that trifecta of by-elections in Somerton and Froome, Selby and Anstey, and Boris Johnson's former constituency of Uxbridge and Ryslip, which apparently he occasionally visited. The results were catastrophic for the Conservatives. Labour took the North Yorkshire seat of Selby and Anstey from the Tories with a stupendous 23.7% swing, overturning its biggest ever majority at a by-election. The Lib Dems took Somerton and Froome with a huge 29-point swing, but Labour's failure to take Uxbridge by the tiny margin of 495 votes dominated the headlines. It gave Conservative papers a chance to talk about Labour falling short, shifting attention to London Mayor Sadiq Khan's policy of extending ULES to Greater London. And for some inexplicable reason, the Labour leadership played along with the ULES story. Are we seeing a loss of nerve from Keir Starmer? Rachel, let's start with Sunak first. I mean, how is he saying he feels and perhaps how should he be feeling? Doomed is one word that may come to mind. Well, Yes, except the Conservatives have this incredible ability that I think Labour should really learn from to have a truly disastrous night and say the next morning to have a unified message. Wasn't that bad? Yeah, we think think it's fine, really. And because they all say it, because they all buy into this fiction, that's how the news cycle goes. Whereas Labour have an incredible night with with one disappointment and they go, ah! Oh no, it's all terrible. It's his fault. No, it's her fault. No, if if, if only if, if, if only we had Jeremy Corbyn. If only we had Tony Blair. I don't know. Um, <laughs> probably not the latter. But they, they sort of go to war very publicly, and that becomes the story. So Rishi Sunak has actually managed to dodge the fallout of what should be the headline from these by-elections, which is that in two really different seats, one up north, one in the Southwest, where they had majorities of 19,000 and 20,000, there was this monumental decisive swing from Tory to anti-Tory. It wasn't really about Tory to Labour or Tory to Lib Dem. It was about who do we have to vote for to get the Conservatives out. That is a swing on a a higher scale than what the polls are showing. So all that stuff about eh, the polls aren't that bad, they're just showing dissatisfaction. On polling day itself, people will turn out and, and vote for us. They didn't. And if I were Rishi Sunak, I'd be tearing my hair out. But the narrative is, wasn't that bad, really. In part, it's managing expectations. And they, they can always say, well, we did better than our expectations, because maybe they expected to lose all three. Yes. Although if you were like trying to bring a positive narrative from winning one of them, Uxbridge is probably not the one that you'd want to win because that's the one that has some quite strange local dynamics that maybe we'll talk about. It, it can't be extrapolated onto a national scale. So I would be much more worried about Selby or Somerton, but they don't seem to be. Well, it, yeah, that's the point, Marie, isn't it? I mean, surely Sunak should be worried about Selby because it's next door. That's the one that he's perhaps best known in. Oh, no, absolutely he should. But I think Rachel's entirely right. There is that 
that it nearly feels like a sort of badly written sitcom about British politics. So again, you know, Labour have had a great night. The Tories have had a terrible night. And Tories are like, this is basically fine. And Labour going, you know, we'll just commit to like, you know, yeah, Harakiri now. Nothing can ever happen again. And then I feel like we've not talked about my favourite thing. She's the Lib Dem, so now like, we are kings of the world. We have won one seat. I don't know if you saw the we've got a visual aid as well, so we always have visual aids. Oh my God, they did on their Twitter account, like a Photoshop of Parliament in like Lib Dem yellow with Lib Dems written in the Barbie font. So they have lost the run of themselves. like they Which I always enjoy whenever they win a by-election. They're just like, this is it and next the world can I tell you my favourite Lib Dem visual joke which was actually from the campaign one of my colleagues went down to Somerton and she tried to talk to the Tory candidate who wouldn't speak to her she went to talk to the Lib Dem candidate and Ed Davey and they were at a stables because they wanted to show that it was a two horse race so they wanted to show the candidate with two horses but they hadn't told the staff at the stables this so they only had one pony Ed Davey was there being like two we need two ponies because it's a two horse race get it get it yeah, it's difficult to pick up after that, isn't it? Yeah. What about Starmer? I mean, is he just determined not to make news if he can and determined to be downbeat and determined to be as boring as possible because it's steady as you go? Yes. <laughs> and is it, work- is it working? I mean, it, it is in the sense that, you know, the Labour Party is still doing very well in the polls. I'm not, like, I found, and I think we'll get into it later. If not, I will bring it up myself. But, you know, I found the stuff on you, Les, to actually be incredibly cowardly, where, you know, Uxbridge is not a seat that even when Labour in 97. So it, it's a seat that would have been incredibly hard to win anyway. So saying, oh, God, yeah, there, there's a policy that maybe three people don't like somewhere. We can't possibly have it. Now, that's no way to rule. And also what worries me is that, you know, he, he will probably get elected as prime minister, that like Labour will get into power. Is that how he's going to govern, you know, as, as prime minister, whenever any polls say that actually... It's not 90% of people who support policy. Like, you know, will he get cold feet? Will he not do it? Will he water it down? So I think it is working for now, but I, I find it slightly ominous. Do you think, Alex, that it is necessary for Starmer to be bolder or absolutely necessary for him not to do that, just to keep going? Because, I mean, perhaps we've had too many interesting leaders over the last few years who've screwed things up. Okay, I think two things. The first thing is that I heard loads of good stuff about the ULIS policy after the by-election, and that I thought, oh, I didn't know that. That makes it make a lot more sense, which tells me that if I, as a political obsessive, was not clear about the messaging on ULIS, it means that Labour didn't go out there and actually sell the policy to people. Maybe they, because Khan is so popular in London, they just didn't bother. And I think that's why they ended up in a difficult position. But the second thing I think is I think Labour are currently making a category error about what the Conservative strategy is. Because the Conservatives are going on wedge issues like ULES or generally green or, you know, trans rights or all of that stuff, they think that the Conservatives have decided that they're going to fight the election on those issues. I don't think that's right. I think the Conservatives are poking those issues because their only hope is for the Labour Party to implode. That is the only thing that is election changing, right? So they're poking those issues precisely knowing the hand-wringing and sort of self-flagellating that will go on in Labour 
which means that the defense to that is to be united and clear and immovable. The more Starmer is on the back foot, the more issues they're going to bring up and say, well, what's your position on that? And what's your position on this? Actually, the positions on this stuff really doesn't matter. They are issues that matter to people, but not enough to change their votes when the economy is on fire. Okay, so whatever they say, Starmer has to keep going on the economy. He mustn't be derailed into reviewing this little policy and that little policy. And he's too easily derailed. That's a very interesting point, Rachel, because I talked to Sadiq Khan about this about 10 days ago. And one of the things he said was he felt really completely at odds with his party over the Iraq war. And on this issue, this is an issue of the soul for him. He believes that this is his equivalent of fixing the great stink of the 19th century or the smog of the 1950s. He really feels that. So the sense of labor imploding might not happen. But if there's a row between the mayor of London, who is the most significant directly elected politician in this country, and the leader of the Labour Party, that would be really damaging. Yeah, I think the Labour leadership's response to that by-election and the sort of, we're reviewing you, Les, we're trying to distance ourselves from Sadiq Khan, is absolutely the wrong way to go about it. I think Alex's point about it being a comms failure is spot on. You've got, I mean, the point about ULEZ is that TFL have estimated that 90% of people's vehicles would be exempt from it. It's a very small number, but it seems like a lot of people in Uxbridge thought they would have to pay even though they wouldn't. So that's your first comms failure. Your second comms failure is the fact that when clean air zones have been trying to be rolled out elsewhere in the country. There's been central government money for a scrappage scheme to help people who do have those vehicles trade them in mm. for, for newer, less polluting ones. London hasn't got that because of the sort of ongoing row between the Tories in Westminster and, and Sadiq Khan and Labour in City Hall. So you could have sold this as a policy that is needed for all of London, that is a positive step that won't affect that many people. And even the people that will affect, don't be angry at us, be angry at the Tories that haven't given us the same money as as elsewhere. But I think they were just scared to talk about it. They sort of knew that it might be a bit unpopular. So they decided not to mention it. And that, that left this void where the Conservatives could just come in and say, this is terrible. This is why you have to vote Tory. Oh no, sir, I'm just getting PTSD from immigration in 2015. Of like the, the, the genius mm. labor thing of going, if we don't talk about it at all, maybe people <laughs> will forget that you know that they care about immigration. And obviously that went really well. Like we, we really enjoyed it, Miliband's premiership. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's good to know. Yeah. Uh, but, but, lessons but, are being learned. It's tremendous. But they, they just don't, there seems to be no strategic vision at the moment of projecting forward and, and looking at what the other side is doing and, and thinking, what is it they're trying to do here, right? Mm. Sunak is not going to go into the next fucking general election going, Labour have the wrong position on you, Les. Well, nobody outside London cares about it for a start. And also, it's it's an idiotic issue. He will go into the next election saying, Starmer is indecisive, he's dithering, and the party is not behind him, so there will be chaos under him. That is his policy. So whatever position you take, the most important thing is to stick to it. Mm. Oh, no, I completely agree. And yeah, but you agree with you further. But what I don't get is, you know, that there's been this 
group within the Labour Party saying, actually, you know, we should just delay ULES now because clearly, you know, it's unpopular. When, as we've literally just talked about, the reality of ULES is a lot more palatable to voters than the threat of it. So so it just strikes me as such bad kind of medium to long-term politics to go, ooh, people don't really like that. And it's, I know, again, if you look at the polling, people don't understand what it is. And actually, once they do understand, they're basically fine with it. So, so I agree. I think that there's a lack of kind of longer-term They should thinking. put forward a, an opposition day bill in Parliament, that basically either funds the scrappage scheme for London or scraps ULES targets mm. for London and see which way the Conservatives vote. I mean, that's the way to deal with it politically. And I just uh, another way to deal with it politically, Marie, is to turn the political to the personal, because Sadiq Khan has got a personal story about having late onset asthma. And we have seen children, for example, seriously affected by the pollution in London. So it's very easy to translate this policy into something that affects people, isn't it? Oh, no, absolutely. And I think people care as well, people with kids, old people, etc. Mm. You know, like we all know we'll notice the level of pollution in London, because I remember actually at the end of the lockdowns, when, you know, everything really started again, going walking in the street, and I was like, oh, God, I can taste the pollution. <laughs> and I, I, I'd never noticed before, because I'd, you know, I'd always had that. But it was such a weird and intense feeling of going, I can taste it in my mouth just walking down the high street. This is really unpleasant. So again, so people know, like if you talk talk about it with them, I think that they can understand and care, but I'm not sure they're doing that. And a final thought, Alex, to take this and to have a sense that of rethinking a policy because of a minor setback in one constituency does seem a test of Starmer's leadership, which is what you're essentially saying, isn't it? Yeah, and, and a failure again to understand what is going on in the on the opposite side. The fact that we're talking now about a new strategy for the Tories, a divide and rule notion on issues of culture wars, right? This is a testament to their economic failure. This is what's going on really. What's going on really is that Sunak has finally caught up with what everyone else has thought for a while now, that he's not going to achieve his five targets. And they're looking desperate for something to pivot to, because otherwise they're going to go into the next election with a list behind them on the board that's basically a list of his failures. So they need something, anything. They might go on green, they might go on trans issues, they might go on immigration. But the central point of attack will be that Starmer is inconstant and Labour have completely failed to spot that danger and are being as inconstant as possible. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Our panel is going to nominate someone to admire and someone we ought to throw rotten fruit at. And I will decide the winner because this podcast is lovely, but it's not a democracy. <laughs> Rachel, hero and villain. <laughs> I'm going to start with villain. And I'm sorry that he has already been mentioned on this podcast, but I think we need to talk about him more. 
Elon Musk is just determined to break everything that was ever good about Twitter. And I'm not just talking about the X rebrand, uh, although it does make it sound a little bit like a, a CD dating site. But I actually would have had him as a villain beforehand because he said he was limiting DMs for people who are unverified. And so much of my work life and also my, my social life, and to some extent, before I was married, my romantic life was conducted through Twitter DMs because it's, it's this amazing like interim. You don't have to have somebody's phone number to contact them. It's less formal than email. And I have got some great scoops that way. I've made some great friends that way. And it's all going to go up in flames. Just like X. Just like X. Now I need a hero and I'm going for Barbie, which I haven't seen yet because it's a film that isn't a franchise that seems that it was made with the acknowledgement that women exist and women go to the cinema too. And it's done spectacularly well and broken, I think, every box office record going. And uh, yeah, you know, Trailblazer Barbie. I'm going tomorrow night, being dragged along by. I mean, taken obviously <laughs> willingly along. No, you'll by. love it. Like it's. So have you seen it? Is it I funny? Have. I'm it's, seeing it on Saturday. I laughed out loud so many times. Mm. I am looking forward to it too. Alex, heroes and villains. Right. So, hero of the week. I'm going for the protesters in Israel. Tens of thousands of people marched 45 miles from Tel Aviv all the way to the Knesset in in Jerusalem last week to protest the the outrageous overreach of the Netanyahu government and were greeted with tear gas and water cannons. And I just think, hats off, really brave, really important, and actually opens that debate for the rest of the world to say, I I can criticize that government without being seen as criticizing Jewishness as as a total. And I think it's a wonderful and brave thing they're doing. Villain of the week, I'm going to go for the weather. I mean, <laughs> my home country's burning. Here it's basically October only with someone spraying you every five minutes. It's the only way I can explain it. So, yeah, right. the weather is making everything bad at the moment. So I just want us to collectively shake our fist at the sky and go, no, that's enough now. Stop it. Marie. So my hero of the week, this is actually quite Westminster-y, but it's Stella Creasy because she is one of the few high-profile Labour MPs who actually spoke out against the two-child benefit cap. Following the news that the Labour Party is not going to overturn it anytime soon if they get into government, which is one of those kind of insane choices, I think, from Starmer's office, especially as so many Labour politicians had spoken up against it before. And the fact that Stella, you know, and, and Stella kind of knows, I really respect her, like she's not going to get a job. Like She knows that by doing this stuff, it ensures that she will not be a minister in a Labour government. But she's like, no, but I feel really strongly about it. And I will say, no, obviously, this is mad with the Labour Party. We should not keep that policy. And then also villain, I was going to give for Elon Musk as well. Um, <laughs> but um, yes, do it. But yes, yeah, so most Elon for all the reasons Rachel explained, but also because it's so embarrassing. Like It is so embarrassing to be on Twitter now, which I really hate and resent. But no, also in that case, I'll go like really hammer that point because clearly I feel really strongly about it. Danny Beals, the Labour candidate in Knoxbridge for giving a little speech at, some, at the Labour policy conference last week and just speaking out against you, Les, again. And it's like, no, but like, you lost. Like, what, why does, A, why does anyone care what you have to say? I'm sorry to say. But also, B, stop. It's a good policy. Again, people will stop, you know, people will not die young or have terrible health problems thanks to you, Les. Like, why is that the thing you're focusing on? And yeah, so, sorry to go on about it endlessly, but I feel very strongly about it. So yeah, th- these are my 
choices. Right. Well, that's it. I think, I'm afraid, I'm going to go with the villain. It's got to be Elon Musk. Uh, it Ooh. has to be the villain of the week. I think he has spoiled something rather good. And I don't quite understand why. But there we are. I'm not That's a psychiatrist. And in terms of the hero of the week, I'm going to go with protesters in Israel. I think they have shown that Israel is, and we can talk about all its flaws and the difficulties, but it is a vibrant democracy where people feel strongly about the independence of the courts. And perhaps when certain people in our country talked about the courts as being enemies of the people, we should have reacted in similarly yeah. quite strong fashion. So there we are. Elon Musk, villain of the week, protesters in Israel, heroes of the week. One of the more revealing moments of the three by-elections was the Conservative MP Johnny Mercer mocking the newly elected Selby and Anstey Labour MP Keir Mather as one of the in-betweeners, saying that the 25-year-old lacked life experience and was simply a robot parroting Labour lines. Maybe Mr. Mercer needs to hear about William Pitt, who at the age of uh, 24 became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and did rather well in the Napoleonic Wars. But we'll move on from that and say that perhaps we're suffering from a general contempt for young voters that runs through politics. The Tories' success has long been simple. Pander to the older voters, ignore the youth. They'll grow up to be Conservatives anyway one day. Meanwhile, Labour are seemingly prepared to turn their backs on green policies, popular with young people. The Greens are up for saving the environment, but they're not up for building houses that young voters need. And then there's the Lib Dems, who'd lost all credit with millennials after the hike to tuition fees a few years ago and seem to have little idea how to win them back. But, and it's a big but, there's a problem in the Conservatives' formula. Research suggests that voters are no longer naturally moving to the right as the age. So when will all the political parties stop ignoring them? And some facts... An opinion poll in 2022 found 2% of 18 to 24-year-olds would be interested in voting Conservative at the next election, and 15% of 25 to 49-year-olds. Alex, young voters are just not actually treated very well, perhaps, by any of the political parties. Mm. I think that's, that's true. And is that because young voters tend to not vote in large numbers? Or do they not vote in large numbers because they are so roundly ignored by our politics? It's a vicious cycle. It's a chicken and egg situation. And I don't know how you solve it other than, as progressive parties, deliberately reaching out to the younger generation and saying, these are the policies that we have that speak to you that address your needs. Young voters, I happen to know that, you know, the Canterbury constituency in Kent, when the National Union of Students got a lot of students to register there, mm. they gave Kent a Labour MP. It's the only Labour MP in Kent. You know, so in other words, young voters actually do make a difference if they choose to turn out to vote. It's just a question of why should they? Yeah, but there was a conscious effort there to get them to register and get involved, right? There was a reaching out. People don't step outside of their lives to do something extracurricular, as it were. You know, we are all the protagonists of our own grand romantic novel, and everyone else is an extra in our life, and we are extras in other people's lives. There needs to be a conscious addressing, you know, that demographic, conscious speaking to them 
to make them listen up, to make them register, to make them want to be become involved. I just wondered what you thought of Miriam Cates, the Conservative MP, saying Oi. in the past. <laughs> well, yeah, there's more. Um, I mean, she says that we are involved in elite overproduction in universities, and there are too many low-value degrees. Now, uh, there seems to be a contradiction between these two obvious things, mm. these low-value de- degrees, what's their elite. But what do, you th- what do you think of that, the attack on universities implicitly, that when people go to university and study things, they become anti-conservative, they become woke lefties? They do. <laughs> That's the truth, right? Because... I think neoconservatism post Thatcher and Reagan has relied on a large slice of the population voting against their interest. You know, a big, big demographic voting for a government that overtly favors the very wealthy in exchange for this lottery ticket that says you too could become very wealthy. And when week after week that demographic observes that, hmm, it's always actually the already very wealthy that win the lottery, it seems, and become even wealthier, and we're becoming poorer and poorer. The con comes to an end at some point, right? Trickle down is revealed as a con at some point. So all they can rely on is people's critical faculties not operating as they should be. And they can do that in one of two ways. Either keep people dumb, which is why they're anti-university, anti-intellectual, anti-books, anti-experts, anti-arts. You know, they're anti-anything that might improve your critical thinking. And the second way is to occupy your critical thinking by scaring you about immigration, about, you know. It all is about people being so preoccupied with what's going on in the fog around them, that they don't actually assess what this fucking government is doing for them and has done for them always for the last three decades. Marie, this is a strategy, isn't it? It's not just a series of blunders about putting young people as if they're all one kind of blob, another blob, and that they're a woke blob and the ones who go to university are the worst. This is not just some sort of error by an MP, do you think? I don't, so I don't know. So I said just quickly on the university point, I'm actually I'm going to disagree slightly with you, Alex. So I think a lot of the reason people turn more left wing, I suppose, when they go to uni is, is obviously like that there's a cultural element there. But I do think it's also, you know, being confronted with real life and actually being a student now with student accommodation is so mm, expensive. Mm. And, you know, and let's be honest, so lots of universities are quite shit now. A lot of degrees are very bad. Mine certainly wasn't very good. And they pay an extraordinary amount of money as well for, you know, for the delight of having a really shit degree. And I think that's going to radicalize you quite efficiently. And then, you know, and they graduate expecting some great job to happen and they don't get the great job at all because there are no good jobs and they struggle to find a flat, et cetera. So, so I think it's also like material concerns that kind of turn people, if not straightforwardly left-wing, but definitely away from the right. But as to your point, I'm not convinced. I'm not really sure. I think the problem is it's not a very good strategy because actually you don't really earn any votes by shitting on young people what I find interesting about this is that historically, and obviously I'm massively oversimplifying here, I think the right was always very good at trying to convince people to vote for them and saying, oh, actually, the others, they're, they're just misguided. You know, they're not bad people. They're just misguided. And they'll kind of come around to our view eventually. Whereas the left was always the one going, you know, well, they're the enemy. They're, the, they're fundamentally bad mm. people on the other side. 
And I think, yeah, the, the right has kind of, well, at least portions of the right, actually, I got a piece in the I newspaper published today on exactly this, if you would like to read it. But, you know, I think it has, has drunk the Kool-Aid and has become essentially quite radicalized. And they do hate lots of their own potential voters, which is not, again, that that's just not how you win elections at risk of stating the obvious. But, but can I ask you something, you know, at, at the risk of being reductive, if you're, you know, the snake oil salesperson of, of a quack cure, do you go to the educated village A or do you go to the not educated village B? To sell your wares. Yeah, but then, because when you look at, for example, you know, Trump in the US, a lot of educated, you know, very well educated white people voted for him as well. I'm not, I'm not convinced it entirely has to do with that. I think obviously 2019 was a bit of an interesting election because it was the Brexit election. And actually there was definitely a class component there, but also in a slightly muddied way, because obviously people who went to university were more likely to vote Remain, but that's probably because young people were more likely to vote mm. Remain and older people were less likely to have degrees. I'm not sure, no, I'm, I'm not convinced by that schism. But isn't, isn't it a, b a bizarre strategy anyway? Because in recent years, almost 40% of so-called young people, now some of them in their 40s, uh, went to university. It's been the massive expansion since 1997. It's been one of the great successes, actually, mm. yeah. of Britain, that more people are, are, are going to university. So a couple of things. Firstly, on Johnny Mercer's point, I don't remember him having a panic attack over, oh no, there's MPs who were 25 years old when it was Jenna Davison, who was elected in 2019, or Sarah Brickliffe, who was, I think, 24 when she was elected as a sort of conservative. So the Conservatives have had young MPs too, and it's just a very disingenuous, double standard, kind of laughable thing to say, designed to get Johnny Mercer airtime. And hey, we're talking about him, so so maybe it has worked. I don't think the hating on students thing, it, there's a faction of the Conservative Party that very much is like that, and Miriam Cates essentially thinks people shouldn't be going to university because they should be getting married and having babies in their early 20s. Like That's fundamentally what she believes. And she thinks that it'll be better off for young people, particularly young women, if they didn't get these silly degrees and go off and, and, and have careers, they just settle down and had babies, although she is an MP. So, you know, again, a bit of hypocrisy there. I think the trouble with the, the mainstream conservatives, if you can call it that, have is that they made these university reforms in 2011, 2012, and they made university much more expensive, as Marie said. They took away a lot of the direct funding for universities that made universities, a lot of them, panic and go, okay, how can we like be financially secure? Let's offer loads and loads and loads of places, rake in these higher fees and drop the standards of courses. And I'm not saying all universities did that, but there is some of that on, on some courses, simply because like the financial position that universities were in was a lot harder. The conservatives didn't put any kind of like regulations or standards in place. COVID happened, which has sort of decimated whole parts of the economy and like all sectors, education being one of them. And young people are going, hang on, this isn't fair. And the conservatives haven't got a clue how to deal with it or who to blame. Marie, I just wondered whether this also misses some kind of fundamental point, which is young people aren't a kind of island on their own. They have parents who know what they're going through. They have grandparents who know what they're going through. So in other words, once you attack the young people who are supposedly young people who are in debt, who face all these problems, who are living in rented accommodation, which are very difficult to afford and so on, you're also dealing with a whole, not just people 
because of their age, but a whole class of people who are related to them. So it's, it seemed to me a very odd way to go into the year before an election. I know, absolutely. And especially if you think, if you look at the stats on the number of young people, but by which I mean, so, you know, up to 25 or 30. Oh, do, do, you still, do, do, I, do I count? So, uh, this is still 31 and three quarters. Okay. Like, you golf said it, not me. Okay. Yeah, just 31 and three quarters. And so I've got a few months left. You know, all the people living still with their parents, despite, you know, being long past the traditional stage at which one leaves their family home. I mean, the, you know, the kids are clearly not thrilled, but I doubt the parents are thrilled either. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure every parent is delighted to still have their 28-year-old living with them. So, no, no, I, I completely agree. And I think it reminds me as well. So if you look at the 20, was it the 2017? Yeah, 2017, I think, election where actually Labour, the, the free university promise, the kind of getting rid of tuition fees, actually that worked better on parents of mm, people mm. who were going to go to university quite soon. So that that wasn't actually, that didn't make the youth vote go up, as people sometimes think. It actually was a very popular policy among the parents of people mm. who were, you know, in their kind of teenage years. So yes, no, I, I, this is a, a long-winded way of saying, I agree, obviously, kids and teenagers and young people do not exist in a vacuum. Reminded me of an American conservative politician who once said to me that a conservative is actually a liberal with a mortgage. Since <laughs> most of them can't get mortgages because mm. it's too expensive. Perhaps that's another way of which uh, con conservatives are not going to grow their electorate. And those of them who have mortgages saw them shoot up in costs thanks to Liz Truss, so they're not conservatives either. Maybe a conservative is someone who had a mortgage and has now paid it off and so is insulated from the current economic chaos. I think they're called over 60s probably. <laughs> It's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for Escape Routes, the books, films, music, or miscellaneous that takes our mind off the demonic world of politics. Alex, your Escape Routes. I watched a film called Renfield and greatly enjoyed it. It's by uh, Robert Kirkman, who wrote The Walking Dead and that kind of stuff. And it's about, basically, it's about Dracula's sidekick who goes to this codependent relationship group every day his <laughs> travel, how he feels he's always in the other person's power and their demands are unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really good fun. Nicholas Holt plays Renfield and Aquafina, who I will watch in anything, especially since The Farewell. She has become my sort of Natasha Lyonne alternative. <laughs> Everything she says is funny somehow. And uh, Nicolas Cage plays the vampire in probably his best performance, I think, in three <laughs> decades because he's actually required to ham it up and be ghastly. <laughs> and so he, end up, he ends up with this Bella Lugosi sort of personality that's just perfect for it. It's incredibly gory and incredibly funny. It's by no means a perfect movie, but I enjoyed it a whole lot, and you can rent it on various streaming services. Perfect for the British weather these days, yes. <laughs> Marie. I recently finished reading a novel called Vagabonds, which I'm saying in that tone because it's got an exclamation mark at the end of it. So Vagabonds <laughs> <laughs> by a Nigerian writer called Elagoso Sunday. And it's just remarkable. You know, one of those books you read and, and you kind of want to stop people in the street afterwards to be like, please read this. Now, it's quite hard to explain. So it's sort of like, and there's an overarching sort of narrative, but it's kind of short stories as well. And it's kind of, so it, it, it's all happening in current day Nigeria. And it's it's basically queer fairy tales 
set in again yeah modern day Lagos and it's like the, the prose is incredible and the stories are really beautiful and poetic and it's just a really really good book Rachel I feel really geeky now because I was going to say that the new season of Only Connect started last week <laughs> on the same day that uh, Amal Rajan had his debut hosting University Challenge, which I didn't see because I find University Challenge a really annoying format. Maybe I just say that because I didn't make the team. <laughs> I've never made the Only Connect team either, but it is, I'm terrible at watching TV with my phone in my hand, kind of double screening. I am absolutely awful at that. And Only Connect is one of the few shows where my phone could be in different room i don't notice because i really really want to get the answers <laughs> and the the way it makes you think a sort of lateral thought cryptic crossword style i feel entertained and educated and uh yeah i'm very pleased this is a new season well my escape route this week was i spent the week with happy people which is I very did, happy people. Where did you find them? I found them in Canterbury Cathedral because I am Chancellor of the University and we had degree ceremonies and oh. we I shook 4,000 pairs of hands. And there may have been somebody unhappy there, but that person, male or female, wasn't in front of me because they were so happy because undergraduates work really hard for their degrees. And when their parents, loved ones, and families come to Canterbury Cathedral and see them uh, wearing the silly clothes that we all wear and shake hands in one of the greatest buildings in Western Europe. It makes me happy as well. That's it for the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you very much, Marie. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. My pleasure. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. And if you want to prime yourself, the panel will be talking about the movie Oppenheimer in the extra bit for Patreon people, so you might want to see it beforehand. I'm going off to Barbie with the kids. Spoiler, Oppenheimer invents the nuclear bomb. Who'd have thought it? Thanks for listening to Oh God, What Now? See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was written and presented by Gavin Eslow with Marie LeConte, Rachel Cunliffe and Alex Andreev. Audio production was by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the producers are Alex Reese and Chris Jones. The assistant producer is Adam Wright with art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. 